Thanks for being here at Outward Church and, and being a part of, of what's going on. I, uh, just a, a few announcements for you here, uh, very briefly. Um, a couple things. We have uh, our Christmas Eve services. We are not going to have Christmas uh, Day service. So Christmas Day is on Sunday this year. And what we want to see happen is we want, we want to see you uh, be with family. We want our staff and volunteers to be able to, uh, to relax. There's a lot of work that goes into putting a, a service together. And so uh, we believe that uh, there is nothing special about Sunday itself. And so um, <clears throat> Saturday, um, which is um, you know, Christmas Eve, we will have two services, uh, 3 p.m. and 4.30 p.m., both identical services uh, they will be a Christmas Eve service, a Christmas Day service. There will be um, a, little bit of, a little bit of teaching, uh, a little bit of singing. Uh, it's going to be awesome. We'll have a story for the kids. Um, there may be a snowstorm inside of the church. We'll see. We're trying to figure out how to make that happen. Um, but we want you to invite your friends. But we, here's another thing that you can really help us do, and that is that if, if you could go on to outwardchristmas.com, outwardchristmas.com, and, and uh, RSVP. And here's why that would help us. It helps us understand how many people from our main gathering will be at, and at which service they will be at. It will help us plan for a number of things. So if you could please do that, go to outwardchristmas.com and RSVP for that service, uh, the service that you want to go to, either 3 p.m. or 4.30 p.m., the other thing that we've done is we've done the services earlier in the day uh, to make room for families uh, in the evening. We do not believe that family is a God, but neither is church. And so we want to make room for both of these things, and we believe that they can uh, operate at the same time. And it, and it should be a, a great thing for us to be together. So I want to thank you for doing that. And, but please remember, no Christmas Day services uh, that Sunday. Um, this week... Uh, uh, on Tuesday is uh, the last week that, that uh, a gal by the name of Rachel Harlan um, will be helping out with our soccer program. She has been heading that up. Uh, she's from Corbin, uh, and she's been a super big help. Can we just give her a hand wherever she is? Is she in here? If you're sitting next to Rachel, like, point at her. No? No, she's not in here. Oh, that's lame. All right. Anyway, she, she helped out with, uh, if you know Rachel, you could tell her we clapped for her. Um, but uh, she has been helping out with our Richmond Soccer Club. We have other people that are involved in that. This should be a great time uh, for someone else to step up and, and to, to help out with that. Let me just tell you, I think I've, I've told you this before, but in our recent dealings with the school district, which have just been fantastic, one of the things that has been so helpful is to be able to say to the school district, we don't just do a one-off event, THX, every year. We are helping every week uh, that school is going on, or most, most weeks, both with a soccer club program, which is helping some of the most at-risk kids in, uh, the, uh, in the school there. The teachers have identified them. They've brought them to us, and we have fun with them. We spend time with them. But then secondly, we're serving in that, in that school by giving food to kids that need it uh, over the weekend. Some kids don't have enough food, so we help them with that. And we're even looking for even more nutritious ways to do that so that they don't eat it before they get home that day. So... Um, in any case, but th those are ways that we serve. It has helped us uh, have a great relationship with the school district. It has helped us serve our community. So I want to thank you for that. I want to encourage you to continue to be involved with these things and to help out, especially some of you Corbin students. 
uh, or if you're a student anywhere, really, uh, I want to encourage you to get involved with these things. Sometimes, I know you feel like you don't have an, a lot of time, um, but uh, I'll give you four kids and a wife. We'll see how much time you have at that point. And, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not making light of you, but I, w- I just want to encourage you towards that. So uh, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. If you've ever read your Bible, you are wincing right now. And so, but what I, what I want to tell you is this, is that we're going we're to be talking about sex today. Let me tell you why we would do that in church. We would talk about sex in church because my nine-year-old comes home and has questions about sex because of something that kids have said to him. And, and he brings questions up that, that I wouldn't talk about on the stage. So... Um, our, our entire culture is talking about sex, but, but I want to give you this out, and, and that is that if, if you've got a little one in here, um, uh, and uh, you, you would rather them not be a part of this, there's some chairs out here that are comfy, um, you would love to have you hang out out, out there if, if you want, but I, I also want to encourage you uh, to be here and, and to be um, a part of what's going on here. Uh, Chris Rock often says, uh, do you want to be single and lonely? Are married and bored. And uh, that is really what our culture believes uh, about marriage and, and about sex, really, is that if you're single, it's hard to, hard to come by sex. Um, and if you're married, it's maybe harder to come by sex, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. Our culture does not have a high view of marriage. And part of that is because many of us have come from divorced homes. Uh, I, I come from a, a, a divorced home. Uh, many of us have been in that situation, and so a lot of us might question, like, how do I know if this is the right person, or how do I know if this is the right thing, or how do I even believe that sex is only for marriage, or how, you know, what, what I, I, don't, I don't get it, they, they don't understand it, and so what our culture has turned sex into is anytime, anywhere, with anyone is okay. What the scriptures say What God says is this, um, my time, my place with one person for life. That's what God says. Let's be real honest here, though. Most of us in this room don't believe that. We may say that we believe it, but I got to be honest with you. I know people. I know people. And I know people who are Christians. And And I know that in most relationships... Before we're married, we're fooling around, we're having sex, those types of things. We're hoping we don't get pregnant. There's been studies that have been done that say that uh, there's as many Christians having abortions sometimes as, uh, as non-Christians because of the taboo nature of like getting pregnant before you get married. So we're, we're, we're just as clueless in many ways. In, uh, in the church in Corinth... In the city of Corinth, uh, it was a very free society. And so uh, the word for the day regarding sex would be hedonism. And hedonism is anytime, anywhere, at any time, uh, with, with anyone, I should have sex. We've already talked about how uh, you know, temple prostitutes uh, would, would have been a normal thing to go visit. Like, your wife isn't for sexual pleasure... Uh, or your husband, I guess, uh, either, perhaps. Um, and so you go to the temple to have pleasure. Uh, you carry on a family line with your wife. There's some, uh, some various historical 
uh, elements I could show you. I, I won't go into that right now. That, that show that this, that this is how they thought. This is what they believed. This is what that culture believed. They believed in, in hedonism, that you should do whatever you want with whoever you want. And so in, uh, in this letter that Paul is writing, he's responding to the church in Corinth. And he's going to respond to them uh, regarding a question that they had for him. And so what it says in chapter 7, verse 1, is this. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So what's Paul saying right there? Paul is saying, I'm going to, sorry, I get, something's bothering me. This happens every service, something bothers me. It's like driving me crazy, I can't concentrate. All right, we're, better. we're back. All right, here we go. Uh, um, where was I? Okay, Corinth, that's right. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... He's saying, I'm going to respond to you in regards to what you wrote. And so what we believe is this, is that they said to him something along the lines of, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now stop right there for a second. What those people are expressing to Paul is a common expression in what many Christians believe about sex today. It's why we don't talk about sex. And some of you are sitting here saying, I think he said sex five times. And that was the sixth right there. And I can't believe he's saying this. I can't believe he's talking about it. But here's the problem. We have bought into the lie that this church perhaps also bought into, which is sex is dirty. So save it for the one you love, right? Sex is dirty. And so you should save it for the person that you really love. And so there's this idea of hedonism, which is anytime, anywhere, with anyone. It's just a bodily function. You should just do it. Or there's this idea of asceticism, which is avoid it at all costs. It's not for pleasure. It's just for procreating, making babies, uh, those types. Of, yes, uh, I don't know if you know this. The stork isn't real, and, you know, there's... Uh, a way that this takes place, but there's, there's this idea of total engagement, or from a Christian side of things, there's this idea of total disengagement, and so we never talk about it, we say that it's dirty, and what happens is this, that many couples get married who have grown up in the church, and if they haven't had sex before they got married, uh, what takes place is they get married and they just go, I don't know how to change my mind from this is dirty, to now, this is good. Like, this is incredible. This is God's blessing on my life. This is glorious. So people can't make the turn. But, but listen, both of these things are unbiblical. And Paul's going to show that to us. And so we're going to talk seriously uh, about sex today. So great Christmas message for you. Um, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman, or you, or you say so. Verse 2 says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now what the Apostle Paul just said is this. He said, because there's lots of temptation towards sexual immorality. We've talked about this over and over again. The word for sexual immorality in the scriptures is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. Uh, pornography today 
is the prostitution in Paul's day. It's, it was very common. It was very, it was very real. And we have this same thing today. At any time, any place, if you don't have some type of filter or some way of accountability on your stuff, many of you, both men and women, will engage with pornography. And the thing that you don't understand is that this stuff is killing you. We talked about this last week where we said the person who sins sexually, which, by the way, is all of us in here, there's nobody in here that has not sinned sexually on some level. The person who sins sexually sins against themselves. They sin against their own body, and it causes major problems. And so Paul is saying this, like the idea that you would look at sex and say we should not engage in it and take this this hardcore so-called Christian position is just really messed up. And he says the way to avoid sexual immorality is that you should get married to someone of the opposite sex. You should get married to someone of the opposite sex. Now, does that mean that you should run out and get married right now? No. No. Okay. I've, the, the, fir the first couple that I married was divorced. I don't even think it was a year later. I should have done some more check-in. All right? But there's a lot of reasons not to get married immediately. There's a lot more reasons to control yourself and not get engaged with that. Sexual immorality happens all the time. And why does it happen? You know, I just want to try things out. I want to make sure that we belong together. Some of you are in that position right now. I want to tell you that Jesus went to the cross for that sin. Jesus went to the cross for my sin, and he went to the cross for your sin, and your sin is no different than my sin. So you're sitting here, and if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, Jesus has poured out his mercy and his grace uh, for you. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day. Hope in him. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're somebody, you're like sitting here right now, you're like, I'm in sin. I know where I'm at right now. At least what this guy's saying. He's saying, I'm a sinful person. I just want to tell you that I'm a sinful person too. And Jesus went to the cross for that. But here's the thing. Sexual immorality is any type of sex. It's any type of arousal. It's any type of engagement in sex outside of a husband and wife married for life. That's what it is. And too many times we enter into a relationship and we say, my parents got divorced and so, and, and, and they didn't work out. And I hear the statistics about marriage and how, you know, 50% uh, of marriages fail. And I hear all of this stuff. And so I've got to try it out before I get involved, either through living together or through uh, having sex. I want to make sure that we, that we work on all of these levels. And here's the thing, is that when we do that, when we engage in sexual sin, the thing that we do the most is that we sin against ourselves. You're hurting yourself more than anything. And, but here's the other problem, is that it's not really true that 50% of marriages actually fail. It's not really true. Uh, that was a projection years ago, but the truth is, since about 1980, when the advent of no-fault divorce, meaning you didn't have to go to court and convince a judge that you have a good reason for getting divorced, ever since that, uh, when that took place, 
uh, divorce went through the roof, and everybody's like, hey, I want to try out another one. Oh, I'll try out another one. I'll try, you know, like they're changing their shoes. Since that point, divorce rates have gone down. As our society has seen, hey, there's a problem with always divorcing and leaving children without fathers or, two, or both parents. There's a problem with that. And so divorce rates have gone down. And so in reality, divorce rates among society are at least as low as 30%. But then here's the other thing. As Chris Rock kind of communicates, like, man, if you get married, you're going to be bored. You're always with the same person. I want to tell you, as, as, this, isn't even, this isn't a statistic. This is a story about me. Like, I married my wife because that's the one person I wanted to be with. I married my wife because we enjoy each other. We enjoy conversation. We enjoy engaging together. We enjoy talking all the time. I remember being on the phone for hours, and I'm like, I'm not a big phone talker, right? But I remember being on the phone for hours, like four hours later. My wife was in Hawaii, and we are talking on the phone. We had broken up earlier, and so uh, it was kind of one of those makeup calls, and I'm like, I miss you, and it was this really emotional thing. We were probably listening to a Chicago album or something like that. Um, you know what love was meant to be? You know that song, right? All right. You didn't know I could sing that high, did you? You didn't know. You didn't know. I mean, it was just, you know, the Titanic theme in the background, all that stuff. It was, it was amazing. But um, then we got this amazing phone bill because Hawaii is not in the continental United States. I'm like, that's the U.S. We can talk. $600 later, but um, we talked for long. I love my wife. I love my wife. She's the one I want to be with. But you know what? There's a lot of other people that feel that way too. But we don't hear those statistics. And so many of us are like, I'm putting off marriage. I'm putting off the idea of marriage. I don't know about that because all of my bad experiences, and those are real experiences. They're real. You have every reason to feel that way. But I want to give you good news. Shanti Feldhahn uh, wrote a book called The Good News About Marriage. And she has some amazing statistics in there that basically say, listen, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you say that I'm not going to get married. Uh, or, uh, I'm hoping we're going to make it. I'm hoping, you know, we're going to make it past the 50% mark. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we begin to think to ourselves that somehow I may be one of those that isn't happy, that's bored like Chris Rock says. And so I want to put off marriage. And so what happens is this, we put it off, and we put it off, and we put it off. And really, we just, we don't really know what, we, like, what am I supposed to feel like? I felt like that too. What am I supposed to feel like? I mean, what, what, what is supposed to be happening in our marriage? Like the, the idea of these chick flicks, um, I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you, like I kind of liked chick flicks when I was a single guy. I know, I know, but... Um, I, uh, I'm really quite manly otherwise. I'm wearing steel-toed boots right now, so I, I can get my, my man card back, please. But um, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of liked these stories. And what in my mind, the thing that was always going on is that my relationship with my girlfriend, uh, Chris, uh, who ended up being my wife. She's here right now. We're still together. But um, my relationship with her uh, 
It doesn't feel like how to lose a guy in 10 days. I mean, do you remember that? I mean, like he's like on a motorcycle. She's like in a taxi. They pull over on a bridge and he's like, I love you. And she's like, you know, I don't know what else happened. There. I can't remember, but it was amazing. Like these chick flicks. And, and I would just be like, it just doesn't feel that way. And I'm waiting for this ideal to take place. And I don't feel the ideal right now. All I know is that we love to hang out and talk together. And so it pushed it off, and it pushed it off, and, I, and I, there was so much confusion. There was so much confusion as a result. But the truth is that many, many people say this. They say that they're happy. In fact, there are statistics that are a little bit across the board, somewhere between 70% and 98%. That's a big swath of different studies that have been done that say that uh, these people are happy in their marriage. That in reality, those people who choose to get married are people who are, they're, they're happy as they go along in their marriage. And yet our society wants you to believe that it's stifling. Having only one uh, sexual partner is just like, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. Here's the thing. If you're playing the field and you're somebody who's just all over the map, let me just tell you, you're having like a honeymoon experience all the time. And I, I want to tell you, my honeymoon was fantastic, but that's the worst sex you'll ever have in your life. I'm serious. It can only go up from there, all right? It can only get better. It can only get better. And the way that it gets better is by engaging with God in how he has designed marriage to be how he has designed marriage to take place because what has to happen in a marriage is that these two people become physically, mentally, emotionally, all of these things, one flesh. They come together and somehow these two individuals become one individual and what takes place is on the most intimate level, on the deepest level, in the deepest part of your soul with immense pleasure and satisfaction, you have to know your spouse intricately. You have to know them. It's God's plan to say, I'm going to make you want to get to know each other better. But here's the thing. What our culture does with sex is that they say, sex is a God. Sex is a God. And so they, they lift it up as it's the most important thing, and it's mocked in so many ways. Uh, if, you can, if you've ever watched Saturday Night Live, it used to be funny. It's less funny uh, today because of this. Every single skit seems to be about sex, and now Donald Trump, but sex mostly. Every single skit is about sex. And I, and I sit there and I think to myself, why does everybody think that this is so funny? It's, it's gross. I'm sick of hearing about it. Have some actual comedy. But they're not alone. Every sitcom, everything you're watching, everything you see, there's always set jokes about sex. And why is that? Because of this. Sex is sacred. Sex is sacred. And everybody knows that it's sacred. So says my... Uh, professor up at Western Seminaries, Gary Brashears. Everybody knows that it's sacred. And when you try to make something sacred unsacred, that's where humor comes in. And you can always get a laugh. 
Because everybody knows in reality, this is way, way more important than I've made it out to be. It's not just a bodily function. It's God's gift. And so what, what happens is this, is that as Christians, what we get to say to our culture is this. It's not that you make too much of sex. It's that you make too little of it. You don't even know the half of it. You've reduced it to a bodily function, the equivalent of using the restroom. I want you to know that it is body, soul, spirit. It is designed by God as one of the greatest gifts that we could receive, other than the gospel itself, at least as a guy that is. Uh, but it, it is one of the greatest things in creation that God has given us to come together. And the thing that we miss so much is this, is that somehow we miss it here in the church. So there's no finger pointing that needs to happen outside of our church, right? There's no finger pointing that needs to happen in our culture. We don't need to point out there and say, all of those dirty people, because guess what? We're just as dirty. We don't get it just as much as anybody else doesn't get it. And so what are we here to say? We're here to say we want to be rightly related to God in our relationships. And so what Paul says here is he says because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There's two options. Either you're in sexual immorality, and sexual immorality is shacking up together. Sexual immorality is, is having sex before marriage. Sexual immorality is climaxing, touching, arousing. Sexual immorality is anything that has to do with sex or sexual contact, uh, contact with anyone outside of marriage. So there's either sexual immorality or you're married to someone of the opposite sex. Those are the two options. Now, that's abrasive in our culture. It's abrasive in our culture. But I want to tell you why we believe that, because God is the one who designed it, and he gets to dictate how it goes. That's what we believe. And anybody who disagrees with us, we love them. We love them. We love them immensely. You're into same-sex relationships. Jesus loves you, and he's calling you to himself. Your greatest problem is not that you're gay. Your greatest problem, as we see it, is that you don't understand the love of Jesus Christ. The, the biggest issue in your life is not that you guys are having sex before you're married. The biggest problem is that you don't see Jesus in all of his fullness and how he poured out his life for you so that you can pour your life out for him. And so either there's sexual immorality or there's married. And then once you get married, now there's a retraining process that's got to come in our lives. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 3. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I want you to see a couple of things here. If, you're, if you have a little bit of feminism in you, the, or, or perhaps a little bit of liberalism, now I want you to understand that Jesus was neither a liberal nor a conservative. Okay, so forget your political distinctions here for just a second. And just say, 
when you saw that word right, the husband should give to uh, his, his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. What that just said is something that's, it's a little bit abrasive, again, in our culture. This idea of conjugal rights. What does that mean? The word there really, it, the, the real definition of that word is he owes something to her, she owes something to him. There's a debt that each other have with each other. There's a debt that each one owes each other. Paul takes sex and he says, it is a right of your spouse and you owe it to them. Sex is a right in marriage. Here's the problem. Too many people find themselves, and guys mostly, find themselves demanding that right or taking that right, which is rape even in the context of marriage, right? That's, that's wrong. What this says here is it says uh, physical intimacy is a right that cannot be demanded or taken because the Apostle Paul says the husband should give to his wife. And the wife should give to her husband. Like this is something that should take place. So now, here you have the Bible saying, if you're married, you should be willingly, sacrificially having sex. A lot of it. You should be having sex in marriage. You can't demand it. You can't take it. It's a right that can only be given by your spouse. By your spouse. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Oh, let's just stop there for a second. Right? Oh, man. Oh, you didn't like that, did you? The wife does not have authority. Let me keep reading because it just it gets better. Let me, let me do this. You know I like to irritate you, right? Okay. Um, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh, oh, this is, we're one of those extreme churches, right? Yeah. We're one of those ex extreme churches that believes something. Guess what? If you stop there, like many morons do, okay, if you stop there, you're, well, you're, you're, you're that. You're a moron, okay? Um, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Let's, let's stop right there for a second. You know what was happening in the Apostle Paul's day? It's a male-dominated society. Men take whatever they want. I guarantee you, that marital rape was not a thing, and men got whatever they wanted, okay? A male-dominated society, that's the way that it was, that's the way that it happened. So when Paul says the wife is, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, there were some Middle Eastern husbands going, yep, you said it, Paul, uh-huh. And then Paul says, and guess what? The husband does not have authority over his own body, sucka. But the wife does. And all the guys were like, what? You just totally upended my worldview. That's what Christianity does. 
the first people to see Jesus at the tomb after the resurrection were women. They were not counted as witnesses in court, and yet Jesus uses them as his witnesses. Women are of equal value in the marriage. And here's what he's saying here. He's saying, you do not have authority over yourself. Husband, you don't have authority over you. Wife, you don't have authority over you. Why is that so countercultural even today? I want to find somebody who's my soulmate, who makes me feel good about myself. And you know what? We're going to keep separate bank accounts. I'm sorry if you have separate bank accounts. We'll talk to you about your sin here shortly. But uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to keep separate bank accounts. And you know, we're just going to kind of see how this goes. You're already divorced. You're already there. You've already left the door open for that. Why? Because you're refusing to take on the one fleshness that marriage is. You can try to redefine marriage however you want. Guess what? You didn't design it, so you don't get to make it. You don't get to recreate marriage in your own image. God is the one who has created male and female in his own image. He said this, that it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone, but they should come together and the two shall become one flesh. In fact, Jesus even quotes this from Genesis. He says this in Mark 10, uh, verse 6 through 9. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Do you think Jesus wants you to know that you're no longer two, but you're one flesh? You don't have authority over you. You're no longer autonomous. You're not an individual anymore. You are a couple. You're together. And our culture wants so badly for you to believe that marriage is all about you. It's the me marriage. It's you come and you complete me. You make me so happy, and that's why I will stay with you as long as you make me happy. Oh, the selfishness, the narcissism of that, the ridiculousness of that is, is, is insane to me. And guess what? I do it. Oh, I'm such a narcissistic jerk. I got married, and I thought my wife was here to make me happy. I thought that she was here to do everything that I wanted her to do. But here's the thing. When I began to participate with God's plan for marriage, what I found out is, is that Matt is a moron. My name is Matt, by the way. I'm Nice to meet you. I found out that I'm somebody who has serious problems. I'm such a selfish jerk. I didn't get married until I was 29, and I had set some patterns in life. I had set some patterns. And, and in my life, I, I had this little world, and, and somehow this woman who I wanted to be with, and yet I was like, stop jacking up my world, right? I like, this is my stuff, my place. This is how I operate, and too many of us go into marriage like that, and we never get it. So here's the thing. You don't have authority over you if you get married. If your marriage is going to work, 
You don't have authority over you. You're not an individual. You are now something way better. You're a couple. You are one flesh. And one flesh means that you come together. And I, and I would encourage you in this. Let's say you do have separate bank accounts. I want to encourage you in something. You're not, you're not engaging on a level. I mean, like, keep them if you want. You're not, you know, whatever. I don't care. But I just want to tell you that it's not wise. There's a level of separation. Everything should be coming together in one flesh. So he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It essentially means that you're no longer autonomous, that you're here together. Verse 5 says this, do not deprive one another. <laughs> this is like, oh, it's, it's getting deep here. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Okay. Now, what he just said here is this, is that if you're married, husband or wife, you can't say, you know what, I just don't want to. I just don't want to have sex. You can, there are, definitely, there, I mean, you can say no, but if the whole of your relationship looks like you saying no, it's disobedience to God. It's disobedience to God. The wife, uh, I'm sorry, don't deprive one another. And Paul said, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. He's saying, in very limited circumstances, would I encourage you to, to not uh, be engaging in physical intimacy? Very limited circumstances. So perhaps so that you can come together and pray, you could fast, something like that, but then come together again. Because here's what Paul says. Paul says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's an acknowledgement of this, that sexual fulfillment in the marriage is intended to help us stay out of sin. In our sexualized culture, in the midst of everything that's going on, with the affairs that have taken place from the people that we know in their marriages, here's the thing that you can do. You can help yourself... Help your marriage by continuing to engage as often as possible. I wouldn't put a, a number on that. I wouldn't put a frequency on that. But you know what? I think Christians are the people that should be having the greatest sex. I just think Christians should be fully engaged with God's idea. And more than God's idea, God's intricate plan that is absolutely beautiful. Christians should be engaged with that and saying, how can I glorify God in my marriage? How can I glorify him? Back to this verse that says, the husband should give and the wife should give. What's it take to give? What's it take to give? It takes actual sacrifice it takes sacrifice within your life 
Guys, let me talk to you for a second. If you don't understand your wife, if you don't know your wife, if you're not trying to learn that on a regular basis, and you expect for there to be a regular giving to you from your wife of sex, you are misguided and wrong. You're missing the point. Because what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is this, is that yes, there's this idea of submission and headship within the context of a marriage, but what that means is this, is that the wife submits to the husband, and the husband is the one who is supposed to be laying his life down. Like he is, he is sacrificing himself. He is lifting up his wife and he's saying, what is it that you need from me? But too often, guys, they, they, they want to reference these various scriptures. You should submit to me. You don't have authority over you. You should be, you know, whatever. And I don't know that that's happening in our church. Or if you're doing that, no one told me. But too often guys do that and they miss the whole point of like your leadership in the home is to lead your marriage into God glorifying sexual experience and caring for them and loving them. And what's often the case is this, is that when you're not getting what you want in a marriage, that really there's probably sin on both parts. In fact, I'm sure there is. But really, where the sin has to stop first is in your wife, or, or sorry, in your life, men. That was really bad. That was wrong. <laughs> Strike that from the record, all right? <laughs> Call that a Freudian slip there, all right? Um, what do you really believe, Matt? <laughs> Let us pray. All right. <laughs> You're the biggest problem in your own marriage. I, I mean, I run into this all the time. She won't, she won't, she won't. You're the problem. You know why? Because you're the leader. You didn't lead out of this. How do, you, how, how do you lead in that? You love your wife sacrificially. You love your wife. Guys, you're not married yet. Get this. Get it. Your leadership in your home matters. When you lead well, things go well for you. If mama ain't happy, no one's happy. You've heard that before? It's true, all right? It's true. But, but, let's, but let's talk for a second here. There's a word for our, our women, too. And I, I, I want to be so careful. How do you love your husband? How do you give to him? You don't feel like it? I get it. But is that giving? If you don't feel like giving, then that's being an individual. And you say, you know, I don't have to give you anything that I have. But if you're one flesh, you know what you say? You say, you're part of me, husband. You're part of me. When you suffer, I suffer. So whether I, if I don't feel like it, I, I'm, I'm, you're sick. You know, things are tough. Things like that. I get it. But how are you giving to your husband in that way? There's a uh, Shanti Feldhen uh, referenced a, a video that came out recently on, on Facebook, and it's, it's basically uh, um, it's mocking a, a man's desire for his wife, and it goes through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday. 
And I want to tell you, it's, it's egregious to me. It's egregious. And the reason why it's egregious is that here's a wife who mockingly says, I don't really care what you want. I'm, I, I'm, I'm busy. I've, I've, you know, I've got a lot of things going on. And I, I saw it, and I just, I was, I was so mad. I was so mad because I was like, man, that's what our culture thinks that marriage is about. Our culture thinks that that's what sex inside of the home, inside of the marriage looks like. But real marriage as defined by God, real sex as defined by God, is a wife and a husband who are both pouring out their lives so that before they even get into the bedroom, the husband has already been sweet to his wife. He's already tried to know and understand her. He's, he's, he's tried to be loving. He's, he's providing for her. He's speaking kind words to her. And before they even get into the bedroom, the wife has already said in her mind, like, I want to love and I want to lift up this idea of one flesh in my home, and I want to provide for my husband. Do you see what's going on here? It's a sacrificial thing that, like, I'm not here to meet my needs. I'm here to meet my spouse's needs. And our culture has this jacked up. That sex should be with everyone, but that's the worst possible way to have sex. There's a thrill for a moment, but it does not go on, and it does not go on. There really is no blessing. There really is no anything out of that. It's just you getting your rocks off instead of lifting up your mate and honoring them and making much of God's glorious gift of sex. So here's the thing. How do you get to that point where you say, I am going to be about sacrificing for my spouse? Too often, at least one or both of the spouses believe, you know what? I've got my crap together. I know that Jesus went to the cross, but there, there really is no recognition that that was for me. There really is no recognition that somehow that what God did through Jesus on the cross was for me. And so there really is no recognition of my own sin. There's no recognition of, of what I've done to deserve death, and yet God steps in my place And so what we're not seeing is we're not seeing the cost. You're not seeing the suffering that Jesus went through as a literal, historical figure. And no one can explain his death, burial, and resurrection, even though there are eyewitness accounts. No one can explain it. No one can see it, and, 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 and they can't really understand this, this whole thing. And so we're not taking Jesus' sacrifice seriously. And yet, the whole interworkings of your marriage and how it works out is rooted in Jesus going to the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. What is this talk? This is sacrificial language. And until you get to a point where you say, I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve it. I cannot see why he would save me. I cannot see. Until you get to that point and you say, here I am. As we, we talked about last week about how when you go to a prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you. So you're having sex with a prostitute and Jesus is in you. Until you see how you've defiled Jesus. Until you see that, that you don't deserve it. You, you can't give of yourself on that level. The only reason why you'll be giving of yourself is you're saying, I want a good marriage. And, and the only thing that you're doing is this, is you're saying, okay, I want my marriage to be all about him or her. So you're lifting up marriage, and guess what? You have now made marriage your God. You have made marriage your end all. And so the real problem is this, is that Jesus isn't your God. Your marriage is your God. The success of your marriage is your God. And it's selfish from the day you said go. Or I do. It's selfishness. Remember what we said? Our cultural understanding is one of autonomy. It says that I'm in control of, of who I am and I'm in control of my marriage and I'll decide what I give to you or what you get from me. And if you make marriage your God, you're, it's selfish again. So how do you have an unselfish marriage? It can only be done in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you take true oneness? How do you become truly one? You, little by little, you're pushing away and you're saying, I'm letting go of the things in my life that are self-serving. I'm letting go of my self-interest. I'm letting go of the things that I want. I'm letting go of demanding that I have sex. I'm letting go of demanding that my husband love me the way that I want him to love me before I have sex. It's two people who, before they get into bed, they've already given up. They've already sacrificed themselves. And what happens is this, is that it's this beautiful intermingling of souls that can come together and say, I truly love you, and I want what's best for you, and I'm willing to give up everything for you because Jesus gave up everything for me. Jesus died so that you could have a great marriage and have great God-honoring sex and so that you could enjoy each other and so that you could glorify God in your culture as you love each other, as you push back against really the fake news of how bad marriage is because marriage isn't bad. God created it. It is good. There's so much hope out there, guys. Get married to a godly person if you're not already. Don't get divorced if you're married to someone who's ungodly. Love them sacrificially. Give to them because Jesus gave to you. 
so much hope, and it's found in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, it seems like such a silly thing to ask for, but God, I want to ask for great God-honoring, God-glorifying sexual relationships in our church. And God, that they would be characterized by two people who have, who have given of themselves, that Lord, we use you as our model and really as our driving force towards giving up of ourselves in our marriage. So Lord, I'm praying that we have people that are this morning saying, I, I realize that I have not been giving of myself. Lord, I'm praying this morning that for those that have guilt from, from past stuff, or maybe, maybe they're in the middle of, of this sin right now. They're living in sin, they're, they're engaging in sin with a boyfriend or girlfriend. They're just, they're, they're suffering in some ways because they're not experiencing sex the way that, that you intended. It's, it's guilt-free. It's, it's, it's an act of worship that you can engage in something on that level and you can feel God's smile over your life and over that act that there's nothing that needs to be hidden from each other or from, or from you, God. That you're, you, you're so good that you would give pleasures like this. But Lord, this is your nature. This is who you are. And sex is really just the tip of the iceberg of the pleasures forevermore that await those who love you. And, and await those who want to honor you with their lives. So God, I'm praying. I'm, ju I'm just praying for those that are here and just saying, I have guilt. I, I'm stained. I've sinned against myself. I'm engaged with pornography. I've, I'm engaged with someone that I shouldn't be. I, I'm in this thing and I, and I need to get out of it. I can sense the Holy Spirit's conviction that God, that you would give them such great assurance in this that that is from you. That you are so good that you, you convict us of wrongdoing and you forgive us of wrongdoing so that we can live rightly with you. Lord, may, may grace wash over us, but Lord, may we deal with our sin May we recognize it, and may we walk in truth. Because you walk in truth, because you are that good. Lord Jesus, we're praying for this, praying for this.